right, good to see everybody. It's like, you know, every summer, every uh, weekend this summer, it's been like a reunion. It's like, you know, we're, the summer is a come and go kind of a thing here in D.C. anyway, but especially in our church, it's been neat to see some faces that we haven't seen in a while. And so there's too many of y'all out there to actually say something to or give a shout out to, but y'all know who you are. It's good to see you. Come and stay for a while. I'm saying it to a couple of my, a couple of my closest friends here in the front row. All right, uh, turn your Bibles to John chapter 8. We've crossed over into John chapter 8 today. We're going to be in uh, uh, chapter, uh, verses 1 through 11. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. Down the center column of seats, there are a couple of Bibles there, and you are welcome to take one. Use it as we're working through the Scriptures today. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, you can take that with you. Break out your app, break out your Bible, or you can cheat and look on the screen here. Let's read together. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we uh, give honor to you today, to the Son and the Holy Spirit. We thank you for your presence in our lives, but really we thank you for your tangible presence in this room. We thank you that you're here with us in your scripture, and God, even now you're illuminating your word to us to make us, um, to convict us of sin, to, uh, to bring us into righteousness and in all truth. And uh, God, I pray very simply for us that you would give us eyes to see uh, specifically for us individually, but but not forsaking the the corporate picture that you want us to have as well, uh, and that you would give us ears to hear all that you would say uh, to this body and to us as followers of Jesus. Um, I pray that we would see and hear your gospel, that it would um, be effective to to bring good news to all of us in the room, and that we would be, be the better for it. And I pray that in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. You ever been caught doing something that you shouldn't have been doing? I mean, like caught in the act, hand in the cookie jar kind of stuff. I mean, y'all remember that? Some of y'all, I'm, I'm looking, some of y'all have gotten your hands caught in the cookie jar, literally. Like as a little kid, those are the kind of you know, naive, almost funny things that we do. We get our, you know, mom or dad makes some cookies. Put them in a plate. I don't know if we use cookie jars anymore. Put them on a plate. Put a little uh, napkin over it to 
let it set for a little bit and you save it for later on, snack in the afternoon, maybe dessert after dinner. Little Johnny, Susie is like, mm, I want me some cookies. And they sneak in the kitchen and their little hand goes up, touches the plate, inches towards the cookies, grab it, actually put it in their mouth, start chewing. Guess what? Mama Dad shows up. What are you doing? Nothing. <laughs> of course, all of us grow up, and as we grow up, many of us find ourselves still putting our hands in the cookie jar and other things as well. And sometimes we get caught in the act of doing those things. Today we read of a woman caught in the act of adultery, and she was drugged out of that situation, brought before Jesus. And in this text we see, really I think it's a fascinating story. It's a beautiful story of the grace of Jesus. If you're here with us for the first time, we are in the Gospel of John. We've been in it for a little bit of time, and we are just happening upon John 8. And this is what a gospel is. The word simply means good news. And the Gospels refer to the four books at the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what the Gospels are, are doing for us or giving us a spiritual, theo- theological biography of the life of Jesus. All of them are kind of the same. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic Gospels in that they give us a pretty close chronology of Jesus' life, from his birth all the way to his, his, his death and his resurrection. Um, John is a little bit different. It, it's a gospel in that it conveys to us what we should know about Jesus, but it's different in that John is not, he's not concerned with a straight-up chronology. He doesn't start with Jesus' birth. He starts with you know, John the Baptist coming on the scene and announcing him, and then we don't see him getting baptized. We see him just starting ministry. John, the, the evangelist John, shows us snapshots of Jesus as he encounters people like you and I in various stages of their life. And John uses the word sign or miracle you know, many times. And so John is showing us these encounters, specifically these miracles of where Jesus encounters someone, someone in a tough spot in life, someone that just needs help beyond what they can do for themselves. And he raises them out of that. He changes their life. An encounter with Jesus changes their life. Um, And that really is what John does. John doesn't tell us really what he's doing until uh, really the end of his book. In chapter 20, verse 31, he says, and these things I write to you so that you might believe that Jesus is the son of God. And having believed, you might have life in his name. What does John want us to do? He wants us through his experience and the the words that he's writing about, you know, him tagging along with Jesus throughout his life. He wants us to know Jesus. And so that really is our goal here, that we all would come to a sense of who Jesus is. But more than just knowing who he is, we'd experience him. We'd encounter him like all these people here. He'd do a miracle in our hearts. He'd bring us to life and that we would follow him all the days of our life. And that brings us to our text. Uh, I got to do some... um, Some housekeeping up front. Perhaps you saw it on the screen as you're looking down in your text. You see some brackets. My my book, my my Bible, the ESV has double brackets around verses 1 through verses 11 of of John chapter 8. And those brackets are there. Perhaps you see footnotes as well to indicate that this account is not found in the earliest manuscripts um, of of these books. And if you're hearing that for the first time, you might be like, what? 
It's like it's so the manuscripts, uh, you know, what the 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 gospel writers or their scribes would have written uh, the words of Scripture as they received them from the Holy Spirit. Uh, they did not contain this this early part of of John, and that might be like ruining Christmas for y'all if if you don't know the so the Bible's gone through some some very strenuous uh, critical um, critical analysis. There's been uh, textual criticism of all the Bible, and that's why we have the canon that we we have. So why why would they bracket this and say that it's not a part of the original manuscript? Well. Uh, they think scribes wrote it in as they were uh, putting together the last words of John that 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 uh, surmise what we have as as his gospel. Uh, actually, most uh, some scholars say Luke wrote it because it, the words sort of sound like Luke's style. What I think we should do with it, and what you know, this is what I'm not making this up. This is what scholars say is the the historical uh, merit. And the writing uh, itself has borne the, the test of critical analysis such that we believe it belongs here. More importantly, we see much of who Jesus is. It, it matches what John says about Jesus and what the other gospel writers say about Jesus so much so that uh, that it does belong in Scripture. It is it is very much Scripture. And and, and that's why it stood the test of time. It's it's, it's withstood the critical analysis that Scripture goes to. And while we have it, uh, more importantly, um, there's some specific things that we see in this text that, that tells us about who Jesus is that marries up with other things that we know about Jesus, how he interacts with social outcasts, his gentleness. It teaches us about his unwavering commitment to truth and, uh, of course, of his grace, the very thing that this passage is about. And more importantly, in this, we see uh, just a subtle glimpse of the gospel. All right. So we'll enter the text at, uh, at verse two. Verse two, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Verse three, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in in their midst. All right. So that's the that's the storyline. A woman caught in the act of adultery and she's drug out and sort of uh, made a spectacle of this is the story behind the story. Um, and so the, it wasn't that someone heard that she was an adulteress and that she was sleeping around. That, that's not what was going on. It wasn't that her and a male friend were caught coming out of a, a bedroom. That, that's not what was going on either. So this woman was caught in the very act, like someone is seeing behind the door in their bedroom in the intimacy of of a couple. She's grabbed out of bed, probably grabbing for clothes to, to put on her or a sheet or something. She's drugged forcefully from that bedroom out of the house through the streets of Jerusalem and brought right in the middle of the temple courts, right to the place where Jesus is teaching. That's the scene. That's the story of what's going on with this woman. Verse four. And they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This he said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. We'll stop right there. So a couple things to note right right here. 
Um, they weren't asking Jesus to give a verdict of, of innocent or guilty. Actually, because they all these are Jews, they all knew the law. Um, the law already said that anyone caught in the act of adultery was guilty. And so what they were doing was uh, they were just basically saying, all right, so this is what the law says. What do you say? Rabbi, teacher, Jesus, the one that does all these all these miracles. They were obviously setting up Jesus for a trap. The text says they were doing that to test him. The Pharisees didn't like Jesus. Think about the relationship that's gone on between Jesus and the religious folk up to this point. Uh, Jesus comes on the scene and he's immediately thrust into prominence because John the Baptist says this guy is special. In fact, he's the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. He is the one that's that's come to be our Messiah. And then he starts doing miracles, things that they absolutely could not explain at all. And then he, he gathers a following. People start listening to what he's saying. And so these Pharisees have a natural uh, dislike for Jesus. And, and we saw last week in chapter 7 where they sent officers to actually arrest Jesus so that they could get him out of the public scene. And for whatever reason, those officers uh, didn't have it within themselves to, to arrest Jesus and, and to touch him at all. And so what the Pharisees are doing is they're, they're taking it to the next step. It's like, we got to stop him from talking. We got to stop him from doing miracles. We don't want him in the public drawing attention to himself. Uh, and especially we don't want him saying that he's from God, that he claims to be God and that he's anything special. And so that's what was going on. There's this confrontation between him and and these Pharisees. More importantly, the, the Pharisees, their, their influence was dwindling. You know, the Pharisees had authority. They, they were the ones that, of course, oversaw the law. But more than that, they were the ones that the Jewish society looked up to uh, as, as their leaders. That they, they, uh, they had prominence in, the, in society. And whatever the Pharisees were, were known to say and, and were uh, whatever they said, the, the, the common people would follow that. And so this is the... This is what the, the Pharisees saw. They saw Jesus with influence and doing miracles, people seeing things special about him. But the thing that really disturbed them, because they were religious folk, and Jesus was portraying himself as, as, as pseudo-religious, a rabbi, a teacher, someone who came from God, is are the, the types of people that Jesus was hanging around. I mean, Jesus was hanging around sinners, tax collectors, social outcasts, prostitutes, and and just outcasts of varying sorts. The, really, the dregs of society were coming to Jesus. They were listening to him, which meant they weren't listening to the Pharisees. And so they, they got to they get Jesus out of the public sector somehow, and they create a trap. And so their, tra- their, their method of a trap was uh, to, to catch him in an interpretation of the law. You guys remember Looney Tunes? All right, so I'm a Looney Tunes fan. It still comes on. I don't Cartoon Network or something like that. Um, one of my favorite uh, parts of Looney Tunes was the old Roadrunner Coyote um, interaction. Uh, Coyote, uh, I mean, he set up all kind of traps and obstacles just to take the Roadrunner out. Actually, he wanted to eat him, right? Um, the Coyote, uh, he never could. I mean, he could he could never get his catch. The Roadrunner was too clever, and obviously, he was too smart. And this, this is the kind of thing going on, at least in my mind. This is what's going on. Uh, the Pharisees are trying to set up a trap for Jesus, but, but it, this is Jesus. And he's too clever 
to, to get trapped by any, you know, any, uh, uh, any obstacle that the Pharisees are going to try bring their way. And this is the essence of the trap. Uh, they were, they were bringing an impossible situation to Jesus such that he would, he would have to give a verdict. And they really thought he only had two options. And here's the first option. Let her go. Let this woman go. That's what they were. She's caught in adultery, the very act of adultery. What can Jesus say? If the law says stone her, then he's got to come with. I mean, perhaps he could say, let her go. But this is what happens if Jesus says, let her go. He would discredit the very laws that he said he represents. The law of Moses says that someone caught in the act of adultery had to be. I mean, it was a capital offense. She was she. I mean, this is like a Big Ten Decalogue commandment kind of a kind of a sin. And the law would have demanded that she uh, she be uh, subject to death. And so if he said, let her go, we all make mistakes. We're not going to have this woman stoned. Then all his talk about being from God would be discredited and he would be considered a joke. Because for him to dismiss the very laws that God gave to Moses would be defaming the law and not honoring Moses. That was the first option. Let her go. But if he did, he would be branded as a heretic. That's another option. The other option would be simply this. Pick up stones and fulfill the law. That means give everybody a stone and put her in the middle and, and pummel her with those stones until she died. But if Jesus did that, then what he would be doing is he would be forsaking the the love and the grace that that was really his chief message. And so they had him caught. It's like, all right, so this woman was definitely caught in the act of adultery. And you got two choices. Either you're going to let her go and forsake the law or you're going to condemn her. But then there goes your message. And what, what are the Pharisees going to do? They're going to go to all these dregs of society, the social outcasts and say, you know what? This Jesus, he's a fake. He might say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy late, and I'll give you rest for your souls. But look, as soon as you mess up one time, he's going to pick up a stone. He's going to give something to his buddies. He's going to take you out. He's going to execute you. I mean, do you want to follow a guy like that? This is an impossible situation that they try to place Jesus in. But Jesus obviously is capable of handling. And we see his response in verse six. This is the latter half of verse six. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. This is one of my favorite responses of all the ways that Jesus responds um, in, in all the Bible. We actually, don't, we actually don't even know what he did. He bends down and he starts scribbling in the dirt. Maybe he was writing the sins of the people. Perhaps he was quoting scriptures on the ground. There's a lot of speculation as to what Jesus was actually doing. Maybe he was writing the exact names of everybody who was in the crowd. Joshua, liar, Margaret, pornographer, you know, who knows? If you hear a pastor say, God gave me a revelation of, of what Jesus wrote on the ground, he's lying. It's, it's actually okay for us not to know. God did not, he didn't put in the revelation of scripture what Jesus wrote on the ground. And it's okay for us not to know that. No one knows. All we know is he wrote something. And when he bends to the ground, he begins to write. And can you imagine just being there? You got this crowd, a crowd of people. Jesus was teaching like a Sunday school class. He was teaching people probably the, uh, the, 
the new covenant law that he had come to fulfill. So all these people are gathered around. They're onlookers. You got the Pharisees. They're the accusers. They're like the jury. They're standing over trying to figure out what's going on and, and what Jesus is going to do with this woman. And then you have the woman. And, and whatever Jesus is doing on the ground, her life is hinging on what he's doing. I mean, what's he gonna, what's he, what is he going to write? What, what will he respond to the Pharisees? Will he say, she's condemned, let's stone her? Will he say, let her go? What's Jesus going to do? She's, hin- she's, she's hanging on whatever Jesus does. The, the, the truth is, we really don't have to know what Jesus does. We don't have to know what he writes, because we know actually what happens as a, as a result of him bending on the ground. He brought what was becoming a rapidly progressing lynching to a sudden halt. And so you got this, you got this short, fast-paced scenario. The, the Pharisees obviously go to someone's house. They catch a woman. Oh, by the way, there was a man there too. In the midst of an adulterous, intimate situation, drag her out of the bed. She's clamoring for clothes. They pull her out of the house. They drag her through the streets of Jerusalem. In the middle of the temple courts, there's everybody there. There's a scene brewing, obviously. And what does Jesus do? By, write, by stooping down and writing. He didn't say a word. He just stoops down, writes on the ground, and he diverts everybody's attention away from this woman onto himself and whatever it is that was going on in that dirt. Interestingly, Whatever he's writing still doesn't keep the Pharisees from pestering him. Verse seven. And as they continue to ask him, see, they're, they're continuing. To, what are they asking him? They're asking him, all right, Jesus, she's an adulterer. What do, you, what do you say? What's your verdict? Is she guilty? Is she not guilty? What should we do in response to the law? He stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Verse 8. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. This gets interesting. Jesus doesn't say to her, let her go. He doesn't say she's innocent. He doesn't say, no, we're not going to stone her. He basically says, all right, so guys, if the law says stone her, let's fulfill the law. That's his response. Let's fulfill the law. And the letter of the Old Testament law in Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy says adultery is a capital crime. But Deuteronomy 17 also says that the first person to throw a stone to, to kill a person that's committed a capital crime has to be a witness to the event. And there's something in that. And so what Jesus is doing is he's bringing a seriousness and a weightiness to making accusations. He's saying, all right, so, okay, she committed a crime. She has violated the law. We can throw a stone at her, but wait before you do that. The person that's the actual witnesses to it, if you're with, if you're with sin in any way connected to this event, you're going to be in trouble if you throw that stone. You know, a lot of people have taken this passage and they, they think it means that that because because everybody has sin, that we can't judge other people. We can't judge what's in another person's heart because we already have sinful hearts. And whereas that's true, that really is a simplistic 
uh, interpretation of what's going on here. There, there's more going on here than than just don't judge because you have you have sin in yourself as well. Uh, when Jesus says in verse seven, let him who cast the first stone, uh, he, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. He's really focusing on the Pharisees. He's focusing on these men in particular who have brought this accusation uh, against this woman. And he's saying that, that, all right, gents, you need to examine yourself before we do what you think needs to happen in accordance with the law. And there's a couple of central points that, 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 that are in this case. Firstly, you couldn't convict someone of adultery on circumstantial evidence. That means, I mean, it, it had to be proven, like absolutely proven. You couldn't convict on hearsay or rumor mill. Uh, not even lying in the same bed together was enough for the, the, uh, to say that someone was committing adultery. You had to actually see them in the act. And you needed not just one witness, you needed two. You getting what's going on here? Think, think, about, think about what Jesus is, is bringing up in, in regards to all this. Very rarely in Israel's history had anyone been executed in Jesus' day for adultery. Think about what you would need to catch someone and actually convict them in the act of adultery. You would have to have eyes on the on the act. There had to be more than two people. And so there's a bunch of questions that you could ask in regard to that. All right. So so how did you know who they were, where they were? How did you get in the room? I mean, the Pharisees didn't have a habit of just breaking into somebody's house, bursting in and and pulling them out of the, uh, you know, a, a, a place of intimacy. Where was the man and why is it that you brought the woman and, and the man didn't come along with her so that he would share in this this shameful event? And so as you dig and ask these questions, I mean, you, we have we know this is a trap. They, they were trying to set a trap. They were trying to test Jesus. The Pharisees likely hired some man. They paid him to be intimate with this woman. They arranged a time that they would come in, burst in and do all the things that the text tells us that they did came in, took her out. They probably let him sneak behind the door, gave him the money, paid him off. He disappeared forever. And they did, did this explicitly to, explicitly to use this woman as a tool to confront Jesus. And so Jesus is not saying in order to judge someone and what's in their heart, we got to be perfect. But he is saying, especially to these, these Pharisees, don't use this woman as a pawn. He's bringing up to them uh, the standard of the law. And so if you're going to charge somebody with adultery, what about the, the sin in your own heart? Uh, can, can a man or a woman, for that instance, go into someone's room and watch them be intimate, even if you're going to take them out of the moment without conjuring up lust in your own heart? What about entrapment? What about um, lying? He's, hold, he hold, he's holding the, the Pharisees to the same standard of the law that they are trying to hold this woman to. This woman's shame and guilt are obvious. We can see that. But what Jesus does is he, he's really turning the situation inside out. He's, he's showing us the, the, the evil intent behind people who thought they were upright. They're using this woman to get at Jesus, but Jesus is saying, you're just as guilty. Verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing 
before him. Um, this, this verse right here makes me smile. He, he says, the, obviously, they're all responding to Jesus saying, let him who is without sin uh, among you throw the first stone. He has written some, some stuff on the ground. We don't know what that was. And then the older people start walking away. And that makes me laugh because um, when I think about, you know, my age versus younger people, you know, younger people, they're confident, they're bold. And even if they're wrong, they're just standing there like, but, 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 but. And an older person, having lived enough life and failed enough, it's like, oh, you got me. I'm out. That's what's going on. Verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Uh, here, it's here that Jesus actually re- gives a response to the Pharisees' question. This woman sin. Jesus, what do you say? What did he say? He says some beautiful words. There's no one here left to condemn you. And so neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Think about what's going on here, though. He doesn't excuse her sin. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't say, well, I I know you just got caught up in the act. I know your husband's been gone for a long time. He's been deployed and you're in a vulnerable spot. He doesn't say your husband's an absolute jerk. And I know you just need to get love from some other place. He doesn't say any of those things. He knows she's guilty. He doesn't remove her from her guilt. He just says, Hey, lady, I don't condemn you. He doesn't minimize his sin, but he does extend grace. And then the neat thing that I see in the passage is he calls her to grow. I'll explain it in a couple seconds. Um, Four things I think we need to learn from from this text, and then I'll be done. Four long things. The first is Jesus is the revealing light. If you cross over past verse 11, This is what uh, chapter 8, verse 12 says. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, so this is that same setting. And this is a a teaser. This is like a trailer for next week. But it's too beautiful to, to, to pass by. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Uh, Jesus is the light that exposes and reveals. You know, the crazy thing about this adulterous story is that we can't help but feel sentimental and probably a little bit of empathy for this woman. And I don't know if you're really grasping what's going on. These are Jewish people. They abide. Their lives are lived by, you know, doing what the law of Moses says. And adultery is like one of those Decalogue, Big Ten, God wrote with his finger on stone on Mount Sinai, gave it to Moses, and Moses walked all the way down and gave it to the people, kind of kind of laws. And she was committing that. Think about adultery. Adultery, even in our day, although we, we kind of minimize it, but it's still a big sin. It's a big sin individually in your own heart, but more importantly, Adulterous relationships, they ruin families. They ruin lives. And that's what's going on here. This woman is guilty of capital A adultery. But if you got, I mean, you'd have to be cold blooded, even knowing what she did, not to feel something in your heart because of the situation. 
And sometimes I ask myself, I mean, why in the world do I, do I empathize with this woman? And I think the reason is, is, is every last one of us, we fear that something like this will happen to us. Do you, don't you ever fear that the stuff that's, that's in whatever the darkest time that you've ever lived in your life would be brought out into the light and those that you know and even those that you don't even care about would know about it and that you would be exposed? This is what the text alludes to, and we'll get more into this next week. Jesus is, he is the light. This is one of those this is one of those I am statements. And so we're getting a declaration of who Jesus is as, as God. And he is, what does light do? Light penetrates darkness and makes it dissipate so that it's not there anymore. And so what, what's happened in this text is the darkness inside of people has come into contact with the very light of God. And in the end of that encounter, the light dissipates. Now, some of it, the darkness just goes away. Because they were they were guilty and they knew they needed to get out of the out of the presence of Jesus if they didn't, didn't want to be confronted by him. But the woman who was the most guilty, well, not, not the most guilty, but the woman who was the, the, the center of attention, who had darkness in her brought on display, came into the very contact with the light of God. The light, the, the darkness was exposed and Jesus, the light of Jesus um, was revealed on her and it was cast away. You know, I, I think, and I'm speaking to myself, we spend a lot of time hiding. Much of our lives are a show. But the greatest thing for many of us would, would just simply to be uh, for the things in our lives that are dark to be brought into the light. That's what Jesus does here. And we're going to look at more of that next week. The second thing is simply this. With Jesus, what often feels like dying is the way to eternal life. Um, you know the story. Imagine this woman. All right, she's, I mean, who knows what was going on in her life and in her heart that led her into this, this bed of intimacy with this man. But she's in this act and door open, chaos ensues. She's pulled out. Um, it, it had to have been like, the worst day of her life. She's brought out as a spectacle. Think about it. She's brought to the temple court. She lives right there in Jerusalem. There's people there who know her and they're seeing her like this. And likely there's people that may have an inkling to her own personal life, but there's probably a lot of people that are like, well, what in the world did she do? Well, let's just stick around and check it out and see how this is going to play out. All this is going on. She knows the law. She's a Jew. She knows that she's committed adultery. And she's like probably thinking, oh, my God, I know people who've committed adultery, but it's never gotten to this point where they brought out in the open. And perhaps I'll even I mean, perhaps they'll stone me to death like the law says. And at the point where she had no hope. She encounters this guy, Jesus. Who chooses not to condemn her. In fact, he he extends mercy he exacts the justice of God. It gives her grace and changes her life. What should have been her death ended up being the most pivotal moment in her entire life. He, he offers her eternal life. I Undoubtedly, even in this small crowd, there's some of you that are peeking into Christianity and 
you know, when we're trying to figure out what church is like, and I mean, what does it mean really to follow Jesus? I, honestly, I think this is a good this is a good passage to look at for what it means in regards to what you have to come up against when you follow when you follow Jesus. Uh, this circumstance, this situation is it to, to become a Christian really is to, to come to grips with the thing that you fear the most. It's being exposed. It, it's 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 having to to be confronted that there are. There's garbage in your life that you have to confess and have somebody um, uh, call that what it is, but also extend you grace in the midst of it. That's what Christianity is. Christianity says um, there's a holy God. And ever since the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden where they did what God said not to do by uh, eating of a tree, um, sin has come into our world, and every person born of sin is every every person born of woman is a sinner. And so the gospel tells us there's no way for us to come to a holy God because of the sin that's in us. We need a mediator. It's like God's over here, we're over here in the Grand Canyon. He's like right in the midst of us. So how do I get to God? How do I get to a good life? How do I get to heaven? I need somebody to help me get across. Like evil, evil Knievels. Um, little jacked up little vehicle that jumped off that ramp and <laughs> on the other side. It won't help you in this case. Jesus is the mediator, and Jesus shows up. You know, a lot of times we watch the news, and uh, the news gives us this uh, this wrong perspective of our lives and of our world. We think that all the stuff that's wrong about our life and our and our world is out there. All that stuff's out there is making me do what I do on the inside. The Bible says it's actually the other way around. It's the stuff in us that's jacked up that causes all the stuff out there to be jacked up as well. I am the weakest link. And that's really hard to do. I mean, it's, it's hard to have this perspective. It's hard for us to own up to that, that I've got junk that I have to deal with. And I don't want anybody else to know what that is. And if somebody else knows what that is, even God, it would feel like death. We spent our entire lives trying to project and maintain an image. Uh, where do I live? Where do I drive? Where do I shop? Where do I go out to eat? Our social media status. I mean, we spent a lot of time maintaining all these kinds of things. But the best thing that could probably happen to any of us is that we would be, I mean, we would be confronted with all of our stuff, that we would be dragged out such that the darkness in us is exposed to a little bit of light. And that at that darkest moment when we can't do anything but feel shame and guilt, we have Jesus, who's the light, show up and invade our, our life. When all of our stuff's hanging out there, we got the smell of sin still on us. He comes to us just like he came to this woman, and he says, Neither do I condemn you. I mean, we could all deserve to, to hear that. There's some of you that will reply, you know what? I just I can't do that. I just there's so much. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know. Uh, you don't know what I've done. I don't know if Jesus would treat me the great way that he treated this woman. And that's true. You don't know. But this is the Bible's response. Jesus came to take our condemnation. You know what? The reason the reason why this woman wasn't put to death is because Jesus was put to death for her. That's the gospel. You can't be perfect 
Jesus was perfect for you. That's the gospel. You deserve condemnation. Jesus took your condemnation on a cross. His body beaten, his blood was spilled. This is what makes Christianity unique over all world religions, over all philosophies and mentalities. Uh, other lines of thought say, hey, if you're, if you're guilty, you should be condemned. If you're not guilty, you get to go free. This is what Christianity says. All you jokers are guilty. Right, right from the get-go, you're guilty. But in Christ, you stand not condemned. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation. I said that wrong. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The, 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 the emphasis in this verse is in Christ Jesus. When we profess our faith in Christ, we become his, he becomes ours. There's a unity that happens. We are in Christ. His righteousness is given to us and he takes our sin and he buries it with him in the grave. The third, uh, the third thing we need to learn, when we get in the presence of Jesus, accusations flee. And I think that's what we, this is what we learn here in, the, in this text. They get before Jesus and all the accusers leave and only Jesus remains. You know, some of you in this room feel like you're, you're accused about stuff that you've done all the time. And it just, you know, the, what you feel in terms of your condemnation and your guilt won't let you go. You're always reminded of it. But here's the way to be free, to be set free uh, is to come before Jesus and, and basically say, uh, Lord, um, all I got is me and I, I did it. Um, or, or don't say anything at all. Just hold your hands out and it's like, mm, this is all I got. And I think just like this lady, the lady didn't say anything to the very end. She stood condemned, guilty, didn't say anything until Jesus addressed her. And what was his words to her? Uh, we're your accusers. They, they've all gone away because their sin is no worse than yours. And he says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. We need to be reminded that Jesus died for every sin that we commit. Jesus has died for every sin that you have committed. He has died for every sin that you will commit, even the ones that you're committing right now as you're thinking here. And I'm talking to you. And that's good news for all of us. The last thing is the gift of grace is always paired with a call to grow. And this, I don't know why I'm drawn to this, but this is this really is the challenge of this text. Not just not just that somebody committed adultery and Jesus came up with a clever way to, to not have the woman be stoned. But here's the here's the message that God is leaving us in this text. And it's in verse 11. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. And, and if, here's the thing that we need to see. Grace comes first. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. That's a word of grace. He's giving this woman what she doesn't deserve. Think about it. She's committed adultery, dragged out in the middle of the street. Pharisees condemned her. They were accusing her. She's done nothing but just stand there with a sheet wrapped around her. And Jesus, because of his love and mercy and because he's going to die the death that she deserves, he says, woman, you're not condemned. And that's grace. That's exactly what she did not deserve. We sometimes get this confused. Because what we want to do is we want to go fix ourselves. All right, so Lord, I'm going to go clean myself up. I'm going to get rid of all my sin. I'm going to have a perfect life, and then I'll present myself to you. 
And, and that's backwards. But the, the truth is, you can't even do that because we need the grace of Jesus to do what he's, he's even calling us to do. He gives you the Holy Spirit so that you'll have the, the wherewithal to do what he's actually calling you to do. That's the purpose of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says he gives us with grace and then he calls us to do something with it. He says, and now and from now on, sin no more. And that really is the challenge of this text. But Jesus gives us grace, but then he demands that we answer with the call to grow. You know what that is? That's sanctification. That's the slow every day, every moment of of believing the Holy Spirit and submitting your life to Jesus, saying yes to Jesus, saying no to sin. It's like watching paint dry. It's that hard part of this is the challenge of the Christian life, that Jesus gives me the grace to do all that he expects me to do. But I got some responsibility. And so if there's sin in you, Jesus is not just going to zap you with like Jesus juice and say, all right, you're good to go. He's not going to do that. He calls you to trust in him, to have faith in him, to believe the gospel, to speak it to yourself often such that you believe who he says you are and you live that out. He gives you the grace, but he also calls you to be who he's called you to be. From now on, sin no more. Jesus wants to make us all into great human beings. He doesn't want you to be perfect, but the challenge is he wants you to be to have bigger heart, have a big heart. He wants you to be gentle. He wants you to have compassion. He wants you to have deep souls. He wants you to be bold. He wants you to be salt and light. But the courageous part, he wants you to actually be responsible for your sin. Receive his grace, but go and sin no more. And so some of you here, you know, you haven't been drugged out physically from from a place of adultery into a place of, you know, your stuff is hanging out all before the public. But perhaps the Holy Spirit is saying to you, I'm calling you out. I mean, I, you got some stuff going on. I'm casting you in the act. Get your hand out of the cookie jar. Go ahead and swallow it because there's, there's something coming up after this. So what is, the, what is it that God would be calling you to, to give up? That's what Jesus was doing. He said, all right, you, you, got, you got your hand in the cookie jar. Pull it out. I don't condemn you. But then he says these other words. He's he's calling you to step into something. God doesn't call us out of one thing without also having us step into another thing. As you ponder that, listen to this. These beautiful words of grace. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink, as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we come to the Lord's table... We are receiving the very grace of God that we don't deserve. Communion is a picture of the gospel. It's Jesus saying, you know what? You messed up. You mess up a lot. You're still messing up, but I don't condemn you. 
But then there's this beautiful picture of response. And this is what our response is. Lord, I, I, all I have is myself. And yeah, I've I messed up, but I receive your grace. I receive uh, the condemnation that you've taken in my place. And I receive the challenge to, to go and, and sin no more. Help me in all the ways that I can.